0: Welcome to episode 243 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast with me, Colton Reed. This show was engineered on Thursday, 16th of April, 2020.
1: The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to JensenUSA.com/slash the Spokesman. Hey, everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesman.com. And now, here are the spokesmen.
0: Those sounds are from Nablus, Palestine. I was there before the lockdown, researching articles for Forbes.com and The Guardian. The Forbes article majored on a new e bike tour of Bethlehem that zips past Banksy's Waldorf Hotel. Get it? And The Guardian article explored Palestine's burgeoning bicycle scene. For that piece, I interviewed Sohab Samara and Malak Hassan co-organisers of Advocacy Group Cycling Palestine. We met in Bethlehem, and the first part of today's show is the audio from that interview, with Malak translating Sohab's Arabic as we went along. The second half of the show is also Palestine-themed. I talked with travel writer and cycle tourist Julian Saraya. He has a brilliant new book out today. 50 miles wide, is his often harrowing account of a number of recent cycling trips in Israel and Palestine, meeting with people on both sides of the divide. It's an unavoidably political book. Heck, even Palestinian recipe books drip with political commentary. Food is from the land, and this land is bitterly contested, as it has been for thousands of years. So this isn't an episode for the faint-hearted. There are some graphic moments in both halves of the show. Before that long discussion with Julian, however, uh, which we did over the internet, here's Malak and Sohab, who I recorded in the foyer of Bethlehem's Manger Square Hotel.
2: Sohab and I um, work together most of the time, um, but he's the founder of the group, and um, he's the one who, he's like the, the, the mastermind behind the planning of the, the, the trips, the, the, all the, uh, the logistics. Um, so I'll answer the questions that I know about the group as, as a media expert. Okay. Or like the, the person who's usually in charge of like talking about the group. And if there's a specific question they want to ask him, then I'll just translate and, and, and talk about it.
0: So When? What year?
2: Oh. Well, uh, Cycling Palestine is the fruit of um, a passion, the passion of few Palestinian um, uh, young men who love to cycle. There was no access, there is no opportunity, um, it's not easy to get cycling gear
0: Um, because it's expensive or you just can't get it and
2: there are no shops here like there are no shops that you can just go and buy a bicycle but they in a way had like this idea and they got maybe used bikes and they would go out cycle because they love it they would explore Palestine go to these unfamiliar roads maybe with not with not really uh, the greatest infrastructure but still they would do it Um, and they loved it so much and they enjoyed it so much to the point where they decided that, we, you know, maybe we should invite other people to come try this out with us because it's so fun.
0: And is this, sorry, is this Ramallah? This is it's, all Ramallah? It's Ramallah.
2: Yes. Okay. And in 2016, um, it was Suhaib and two other friends, they decided to start posting on Facebook um, and invite people to join the, the, the tours. And uh, it was as simple as, you know, we're going to maybe Ramallah, surrounding areas, who wants to join, we have like two you know extra bikes and then, you know, two people would join and then they were able to get another bike and, 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 and so on, you know, uh, until at some point there were like 10 people joining the, uh, the, the trips, including myself and that's how I came to Know to, to So Hype. And then we, we, we sat down and, and we were thinking, how can we like make this, thing more organized and we can grow this as a movement because we know a lot of people when they see us they're like oh my god this is amazing When want to join but we don't know how and then we decided to start something called cycling palestine um, something that will include all of palestine there's no, no borders no restrictions uh, no roadblocks it's everywhere even though it's in ramallah and slowly we became you know we started to leave ramallah like go to the you know jordan valley go to Bethlehem, go to khalil to list, just to get to know people find you know new roads and um, and you know after four years we have over 3,000 members who join us yes I mean not at the same time of course in each like uh, tour but you would see them like come and go depending on their schedules of work you know if they have time or not and we have over you know 12,000 followers on Facebook of people who actually either joined, either want to join or they are really invested in the idea
0: so is this only leisure or do some people then start cycling and maybe think, oh, I'll cycle to work or so how do you
2: think it, uh, it, it is? So
3: it's,
2: it's not like leisure in a sense of, I mean, of course we have fun. But we really look at, especially now that we grew, we also, like, we not only grew in size, but we also grew in mind. We, we, we realize that biking is not just like a sport. It's a really a tool for change. And now we cycle to tell people that, you know, environmentally it's good. Uh, socially it's amazing. And also, like, economically, if you don't have money, you can get a bike and you can go anywhere. Um, it's, a, it's the best icebreaker for us. Whenever we are on the road, someone wants to talk to us, know who we are. So for us, it's all, you know, it's leisure, of course, especially in in circumstances where there is no a lot of like there's there's not many like outlets for Palestinians to, you know, to, um, I don't know, like go to the beach or like have fun. So we're like exploring the um, untouched areas, the roads, which usually we don't usually go to, to walk, you know, in. So we cycle. So for us now, a lot of people have adopted this as a lifestyle. They go to work on bikes. Uh, We have a lot of athletes who, um, you know, decided to become like professional cyclists with the minimum resources. I mean, you're talking about bikes that are not like, you know, uh, competitive or like professional bikes, but they want to become athletes. They cycle, you know, every day to train with, in 2000, in
3: 2019.
2: Um, we actually uh, the, 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 the cycling federation became active which is very late in the world of cycling but this, this was kind of a result um, to this like, growing phase that we've helped create when they saw that more people are cycling, more people are interested in this so yeah
0: in, we've just been in Jericho yeah. and there's actually quite a few people cycling in, in Jericho for yeah. transport yes. on electric bikes mainly but in other places in Palestine, it's maybe less because of the hills?
2: <laughs> so what's,
0: what's the... Is Jericho's flat? Is that the reason? Why, <laughs> why, why does Jericho have more people riding?
2: Yeah. For example, why is <laughs> it just in the river? He's a big guy, but he's a big guy, but he's a big guy, but
3: uh,
2: yeah so in uh, Tulkarim and Kalkilia, which are two other governorates in Palestine, they also have this like a uh, cycling kind of phenomena uh, like Jericho. also in Gaza, I've been to Gaza like uh, a few months ago, you know for work, and the uh, cycling is a big thing.
0: Uh, adults as well as children because obviously yes. children ride bikes. Yes. But is, is that the perception that it's a, this is a children's... Like, why are you yeah. doing a children's activity?
2: So, I think, you know, here is where, how I, I can explain this phenomena. Is that you cycle, not for leisure, but because you're forced to, in a way, because it's cheap. You can get a bike, put, like, the bread and deliver it easily. You don't need the gas. You don't need, um, you know, fi- fixing it is so easy. Um, and also, you know, because of the fact that Jericho is flat makes it the ultimate really cheap alternative but when you go to the other you know uh, districts or the cities because it's very hilly no one is you know willing to go through that Um, but uh, also but the problem you know sohaib for example found when he started cycling is that the comments of the people were always like they always told him why are you cycling? Uh, you're you're an old man now you should be thinking about like starting a family having babies you know working this is stupid don't do that and so there's this like mixed like contradicting perception of cycling like do you want me like you can only cycle if you're poor and you need a transportation and do delivery but you cannot cycle if you're an old man and uh, you should be working. You know what I mean?
0: So if you have a Mercedes or if you have a good car, you should not be on a bicycle.
2: Yes. I mean, you're obviously fooling around. And it's too, and, and, and even the girls, like, I mean, it's different. So for boys and girls, they start riding their bikes. You know, they get their first, like, small bike, you know, with, with, the, with, the, with, the, with the colors and everything. Uh, but you reach a point where, as a girl, it's no longer acceptable to be on a bike. That's maybe a bit later for a man, for a boy. But at some point you have to be serious, think about studying, about work, about what you want to do in the future, that's it.
0: So that one of my next questions was going to be <laughs> about the, st- the status of bicycling with women, yeah. and how different that is for a, compared to a man. So maybe it's slightly more acceptable, it's, it's considered strange, but acceptable. Yeah. But for a woman, it's strange and not acceptable, yeah. so how, how have you tackled that?
2: Yeah. Uh, so, for, so I, maybe he can tell you first about his experience as a man because I, I think it's, it's a bit of a misconception, you know, perception that men don't have any troubles with cycling. They do, but it's different than women. So mm-hmm. maybe he can tell you. كيف شعورك لما تكون على بسكليات؟ شو المشاكل اللي واجهتها مجتمعياً؟ يعني هاي كثير يعني اليوم
3: مبكرة وبعد
2: نواجهها. كونك شبع بسكليات يعني شو أكتر المواجدين؟ دك استكبر. آه. يعني أول كلمة يا
3: دك استكبر.
2: So he says, um, basically the, 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 the comment, the main comment he always hears is like, uh, don't you want to grow, you know, when are you going to grow up? Uh, come on, you need to grow up, uh, get a life. Um, but recently, since we've been doing this for over, you know, four years, now people kind of lost hope in us. They're like, us. there's no way they will change their mind. They can, you know, be, continue to cycle. And they're now accepting it more. As for me, I think the the challenges were way 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 more complicated because you're not only doing something that is perceived as a as a, like as a game or like as a, as a toy or like as a way for kids to play, it was a way to break free from society's, you know, traditions, um, even religious um, misconception that it's religiously unacceptable or forbidden. So because I'm, I'm, I'm visibly muslim so when i'm always on the bike people are always throwing comments in my face and you know, how could you be a good muslim and also like be showcasing yourself or like exhibiting your body on the road um for example the the my my friends my cyclist friends uh, the men would be more it would be easier for them to embark on these amazing challenges and adventures because no one will be asking where this man is sleeping where is he going is he alone um, is he going to be fine, but for me because most of the men the cyclists here in Palestine are men um, Us the women the, the the small number will not be able to have the same freedom to join uh, they their the adventures like the Aqaba uh, trip when we went to Aqaba we were nine guys and two girls mm. and When we came back most of the comments were like how could you be sleeping like in tents and on the roads? deserted road with like nine other Mm. men Mm. um so i think it's a combination of religious of course it's not like accurate no foundation for it but it's traditional it's um i think social like the expectations of a woman to be at home take care of the babies be decent and modest and it's kind of in a way in their mind it contradicts with being a cyclist as well
0: so that's from the muslim point of view yeah do you have christians Is, is this like it doesn't matter who you are what religion you are, it's the bicycle that is the mix, the, the thing that keeps you together? Or is there some, some, some sort of segregation here on religious
3: lines?
2: Uh-huh. asked me about the Christians <laughs> and the Muslims if they have different beliefs about the Biscayles. What do you think? I mean, I don't think that yeah. Well, Yani, yeah, what they said exactly? Like, I think I tell you a story, and so you will be able to understand that at the end of the day, it's not religion as much as society. Christian, Muslim, even like Jewish. If you live in a society, you will adopt the same ideas. For example, the other day I was um, shopping for like a new uh, apartment for my my friend, she a colleague. She came here to Palestine from Germany. We were looking for a new apartment for her, and the guy who was renting, he's a Christian. And so we got to talk and his daughter was there and I told him about my cycling, you know, uh, work with my friend and the girl, she poked me and she was like, please tell my father that I want to, you know, ride a bike. He wouldn't let me. And then I was like, what? I mean, you've been like telling me about how amazing my work is. He works with this like NGO you've been telling me about how amazing my work is at cycling and then you won't let your daughter cycle. And he was like, yeah, because I don't want society to attack her. I was like, but it doesn't matter. If we continue to listen to society, nothing will change. And that was actually very recent that I thought, it doesn't really matter, you know, what is your religion, what is your background. If you live in a society, you want to confirm. You want to be a part of them and you want to avoid being attacked. And this is what makes the difference between someone who wants to make a movement or like create a movement or someone who just wants to follow the lines, you know.
0: So are there Christians in your group?
2: Yes. Yes. We, so it's, we, there's
0: no, it's just, it's just the, the cultural barriers, not religious barriers. No,
2: no, 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 okay. definitely. I, I think in Palestine, and I think they both agree that in Palestine, religion has never been a dividing force. I know there are the cases here and there, but I can definitely t- tell you that I would never come to you in the street and ask you, what is your religion? I've worked with colleagues for years before like, realizing that they come from like, a different like, sect or religion. Like, it's not like in other parts of uh, the Arab world, like in, say, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq. It's never been um, like a defining factor in our relationships. But, of course, there are like, these exceptions here and there.
0: So, put that another way, does it actually help bring people together? From different cultures, different religions, because you are joining with something that is uh, an overarching thing, and you are coming together to share something together. Does that bring you together more than if you just met in a, some other way?
2: Mhm. بسال إذا بتحس إن البسكالات بيساعدك إنك تلتم تلمل الناس من مختلف الثقافات، مختلف الباجريونز، مختلف الأفكار، بتلملهم. بتحسوا إنو بيلمل البسكالات. When I want to talk about um, differences, religion does not come to my mind as maybe um, something that cycling has helped like bring together in our case, maybe because you know in Palestine we have Christians and Muslims it 's never been an issue, and we never really ask anyone in our groups if they 're like Christian we don 't even know like it 's never been something that we talk about. But I think when, when we're talking about like bringing people together, I have other uh, maybe considerations. So we helped, as I told you, like we helped bring the Bedouin who lives in a tent with the, with the, with the sheep and has a different lifestyle, different even accent. Um, saw us maybe somewhere on, on Facebook or maybe saw us in the street, decided to join us. Um, and now they're cycling with um, a person who studied in a, like a fancy school uh, in Ramallah Um, in my case someone who studied in an honor school in a village Uh, we also had the refugees come Um, i think we also had the religious conservative join us and also mingle with someone who's very liberal have these like even conversations along the way and then you will see that this religious or conservative person is no longer having an issue with me as a woman being on a bike you would see that they eventually will be also talking on facebook if someone like tried to attack me he would defend me as a as a, as a human, because he knows who's Malak is. He knows that he's, a, he's my friend now, uh, regardless of what religion in his mind says. So I think, yes, that's, and this is why we do this for four years, you know, has been doing, have been doing this for four years. Cycling has been really the most effective social tool, you know, uh, for change. Because it, it, as I told you, it's an icebreaker. People are really intrigued when they see us. They want to know what, what the hell we're doing, and they just want to be part of this. And so I think we have leverage with biking that we are thinking, when we think about the future, we believe in, that it's going to be a major, a major um, turning point uh, for Palestinians if we continue to use cycling to, to, to bring change, you know what I mean?
0: So we've talked about the complications of, of culture, religion, yeah. sex.
2: Yeah.
0: Add in the complication of where you live. Yeah. So you are under occupation, and you cannot go everywhere you'd maybe want to go because of the ABC situation. So, so how does how does that complicate things on top of all those other complications?
2: I think Sahib would be the best person to answer this question because he's had. Amazing stories, encounters, and problems with that in that regard. So, I'll just translate. But, like, So, um, just for context, uh, he's a paramedic, uh, so, uh, as a job, um, he tells me a story to try to answer a question of how. Difficult it is to to do anything. I, I think in I think in Palestine, but mostly to be like a cyclist, um, because you as a you know as cycling you have to go on roads, and most of the good roads are the settler roads we call them, the ones by Israel, um, which means they are under like heavy Israeli control. There are patrols on the road, um, and so he tells me a story to, to, to kind of to give you some kind of sense into how. how how difficult and dangerous sometimes it could be. Um, he was with his friends, uh, with his friend uh, Murad, when they started uh, cycling. And so they were taking this bypass road into like a main, we call them settler roads, because it's, they're usually used by the settlers in the West Bank. Um, and then they were stopped or pulled over by, by patrol and um, next to a gas station. Um, they were asking them who you are and what you're doing here, and so when they realized they were Palestinian, because most of the time we're mistaken as, as as foreigners, because there are not a lot of Palestinians who cycle. Um, they took them behind the gas station. Um, they asked them to take over, you know, they take off their vests and to take off their helmets. They took them aside with the with the with the bikes, um, and because uh, Sahib speaks some Hebrew, he um, heard them say if they should shoot them in the foot or maybe in the arm like they were like taunting them in a way and that was in a time where there were a lot of stabbing um, uh, kind of incidents against Israelis Um, it was a very tense period and um, I asked him if you were afraid and he was like I was not really afraid for myself because at the end of the day if I'm gonna die that's it I'm gonna die I could die anywhere but he was very worried that if this escalates in a way, if he tries to defend himself or like to tell them like there are no grounds for you stopping me and treating me like that. They could easily shoot him, treat him in a different way, like arrest him. And if they eventually kill him, for example, they can say that he was posing, you know, danger to them. And then eventually they will blow up his family's house. And, and you can see like how your brain starts like to go, you know, wander in in dark places while you really just want to go cycling. And for me, this is also the same, Miani. The other day, when we were going to the northern Jordan Valley on a bike. Actually, it was uh, last Friday. We were also like interrogated on the road by the Israeli um, um, soldiers, even though we were not doing really anything. We were just waiting on the side of the road for the rest of the group to, to join us. And so they came and what i always say to people that i have no problem being nice to anyone but sometimes it feels a bit difficult to be nice to someone who's not treating you in a nice way but you feel like you have no other option but to say thank you to someone who's occupying you thank you for someone who's just taken your idea for no reason someone who's even not willing to tell you have a good day when you told them like have a good day because you're always worried about what's going to happen if I tick them off the wrong way, you know what I mean? So, we've always been pulled over by Israeli soldiers, sometimes even the checkpoints we cannot just cross, Um, we arrive at a place where there's a checkpoint and we have to go back, so it seems like there is always, it's never been free, we'll we'll never be free, but we're always trying to see the good side in it, at least we are trying to do something nice. Um, So,
0: difficult question. Yeah. Uh, Could Israelis, be a part? I mean, is it, okay. Israeli soldiers are doing their job, they're stopping you, that's not good, that's not nice. Yeah. But could an ordinary Israeli, could they join Cycling Palestine? Would they want to join Cycling Palestine? How, how do you think they think yeah. about Cycling yeah. Palestine?
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm asking, is <laughs> there one day of the Israelis, not So, um, I'll give you his opinion and I'll also explain more from my side, Um, he tries to sum it up in a few words. Every Israeli is, was, will be a soldier at some point and we cannot judge anyone but If they did not do anything bad to me now, they might do something bad to someone else without any grounds. And it makes it difficult to have faith and trust in in someone when you know that they're kind of, uh, what is the word, they are part of occupation. They're standing still, not doing anything, approving something that is as bad as that. And so this stands of a moral dilemma for us in how we even, we know that there are amazing Israelis, beautiful, doing amazing things to humanity. I cannot say, you know, that every Israeli is bad, like I can't say that every Palestinian is good, but it makes it difficult for me as a Palestinian, as both, you know, two Palestinian educated, uh, open-minded, peace-loving Palestinians to accept Israelis when we don't know for sure that they are also against um, you know, you know uh, uh, crimes against, against humanity. They are not against injustice. They are not against like occupation, killing innocent people, uh, blockading people in Gaza. So it makes it difficult for me. And regarding other question about will they want to join, I don't think most of them will want to join um, either because they don't, you know, because they have political reasons, of course, or because the Israeli government is doing great work in like increasing propaganda against Palestinians, you know, creating this idea of the other who is like just waiting for the, sec- the right moment to shoot you and kill you. I mean, you've seen on the way all these like red mm-hmm. like uh, uh, billboards or like uh, red signs that says, you know, it's danger to go into these areas. Well, I know many Israelis and I have Israeli friends and I even know like Israeli journalists who come and co- go every single day. Unless, if you want to go there provoking people, you might be hurt, of course, because it's a very tense, um, you know, reality. But other than that, it's not like the the zombies are living on the other side. You know what I mean? I think, when I always see these, like, red signs. I'm like, yeah, it's as if there are the zombies living on the other side, and they're, like, warning them from the the other. And so, your question has many layers, but I think for now, um, it's not in line with our maybe side of the story of like narrative to welcome Israelis unless those are explicitly saying that we are against occupation we're not going to live in a in a village that was destroyed in 1948 where maybe my my grandfather was living there someone who is like I know a lot of Israelis who refuse to come to Israel because they're like unless there is no just solution for Palestinians we cannot be part of this so I think it really it's really like it depends on the case.
0: Do you think if I came out here as an independent cycle tourist I would be welcomed the same way I was welcomed in the nineteen eighties?
2: Even more. <laughs> Even more,
0: okay.
2: <laughs> I mean, um, صاحب, just to translate and keep like sahib in the conversation, mm. he says that uh, إنو, uh, قبل... <laughs> 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 um and also that if you were able to send a really great message when you came cycling like a way back, you had an impact in a way, and if you come again, and, and people always like welcome someone who is willing to say things the way they are, and also support their right, to just live a a decent life so uh palestinians i think uh, even though we have like poverty we have a lot of you know social problems but we are very educated and we have come to understand the power of international support and solidarity so if you walk into the west bank i swear you're gonna you're gonna be like maybe too overwhelmed with the with the with the respect and with with the with the the support and people wanting to have you in their homes because people have realized that any person who comes to Palestine will maybe be a better voice in sending out a message because no one trusts us anymore. Like Even if I want to say to any delegation or anyone that we are under occupation, it'll be like, yeah, you you say that. But if someone from outside comes and sees what's been happening and, and sends out a message, it'll be heard better. It'll be more credible in a way from coming from a white man who's like Mm -hmm. a journalist, who's like known. So, yeah, I mean, people understand um, that and they will welcome you even more.
0: Okay. Yeah. You. Me. So, you had a background in Swansea, which (laughs) you, that's where you found cycling. So, tell me about what you're doing in Swansea and how you... (laughs) We're riding out to the coast, <laughs> and that's how you fell in love with cycling. Yeah. I've done some research.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, I'm talking about me. I'm my Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, my story is—I um, think I, I've told it the story before, but in, in a nutshell, um, I've always loved uh, sports. Um, I was born in the UAE, did a lot of sports—karate, uh, you know, dance, uh, folklore, swimming—but then came back here. It was, of course, a very tense um, situation after uh, you know, an intifada. Uh, there were roadblocks, curfews, so I was kind of denied this opportunity to continue with my sports life. Um, and uh, thankfully, because of my line of work, I was a journalist, um, you know, I speak English, so I had a lot of opportunities to travel. And everywhere I go, I would just always get a bike and, and cycle, so I kind of kept my love for biking abroad. But when I went to Swansea, The first thing I did was buy a bike. I swear, like I went to this used bike shop and I was like, "I need a bike. I don't. I don't care what kind of bike." I remember it was black, black and green. Um, And I called my, you know, then fiance, uh, now my husband, and I told him, "I got a bike. It's like seventy pounds, you know." And he was like, "Well, that's great, you know." And I started. Does he ride? My husband. Yeah. Yeah, no, he doesn't. Okay. He he doesn't ride. No. (laughs) I mean, I took him um, to Jordan once to try biking in like a safe. You know, environment because he is convinced this is not safe here and then he was like no this is not for me but he's very supportive yeah anyway so yeah I, I kept biking and I swear I would bike like hours every day and I just felt so free because I, I would like feel so overwhelmed, overwhelmed with studying and everything and then get on a bike and feel very relaxed and then when I came back here I wanted to go back to biking but I was so terrified of people like attacking me all the time and I stopped biking for a long time you know maybe for 6 to, to maybe even 9 months until I found uh, Sohaib um, at the time that and that's it takes me back to this like elite bikers like uh, professionals in Palestine when you try to join this like biking community, it's very exclusive because who are you to join us on this amazing adventure when you have no background in mountain biking? Like No one was welcoming enough of me as a woman. I have no background, I have no equipments, no bikes. What am I going to do? And so I was also rejected or even ignored by those who I contacted, but then I contacted Sohaib. I was like, yeah, please come, and we met each other, went on a bike, and never stopped again. It's amazing.
0: So you're doing journalism in Swansea?
2: I a, did communication, study? media practice and PR. Yes. Okay. It's a long and title. When, and what,
0: when, what year was that? It when, when was were you there?
2: in 2013-14.
0: Okay. And yeah. then what are you doing now here?
2: I worked as a freelance journalist for a long time at Jazeera, the Air Weekly in London, did some you know, work for the Forward in uh, the US. I've been doing a lot of stuff, but then I... I realized that I can't just possibly like, focus too much on like, freelancing because, I mean, you know, media is very difficult. You have to be always on the run. It's not enough money. So I decided that if I want to like, dedicate my life also for sports, I need to find a better job. So I found like an NGO, a good paying you know, job. And you have to kind of, I think in Palestine, everyone has to sacrifice a part of themselves because I mean, economy is, economy is bad and everything is bad. But I, I just love that we are biking together. And I feel like I'm doing something, even if it's not, like, journalism, which I absolutely love. Yeah.
0: So, clearly, there are some places, as a Palestinian, yeah. you can't go in your homeland. Mm-hmm. So, wh- where can you... Know, apart, I guess the settler communities, <laughs> you can't go. Yeah. But are there, like, you know, trails, which you would absolutely love to go, but it's maybe too dangerous for you to go? Or you, c- you can do parts of it, but not the whole of it? What's... Where, where can you not go, and where would you like to go?
2: Okay, so I'll ask Sahay because he's the expert in trails. I'll mm. ask you, of course, in Palestine, and in Israel, it's hard to go, but... I see, we have a lot
3: of areas
2: here. Yeah, so um, he says that he, of course, would love to go all over the West Bank, but the problem, and if you're familiar with the map, uh, you can see it's basically like a, you know, like Swiss cheese at the moment. Um, so between every valley and another valley, there is a settlement. Um, if you want to, like, hide, let's say, cycle for I don't know, 50 kilometers, you will be faced with at least two checkpoints and a settlement, maybe another like surveillance tower, patrols. So in a way, there is the continuity is always broken for a sport that is based on long, you know, distances and and space. Uh, which has always been a problem for us because um, so for them as the guys who are into mountain biking usually what they do is they do special uh, very exclusive trips uh, because it's not safe, but they still would, would love to do it. So maybe they will go into this like forest, you know, forced area, uh, cycle. Um, it's a settler, you know, maybe trail. Uh, usually Israelis are their soldiers. They would do it, try to disguise themselves as maybe foreigners, but they don't do that much because it's not safe, and they would not never take other Palestinians uh, and be responsible for their safety. So, for example, I've never been on these like uh, special like mountain trails because it's just not that safe. Um, he, he sometimes goes on when he really needs that, like, like you know, rush, uh, you know, biking rush, um, but as, a, yeah, as he mentioned, this is, has been a problem, and so that's why we're always confined in the roads between villages, or in worst-case worst scenarios, we hit the main roads, the settler roads, but these are usually just for a small portion of the road um, to be able to arrive into the other village on the other side, yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, thank you very much for, for coming here no and, and, and talking to me. Uh,
2: um, it's a pleasure. It's been, it's been
0: fantastic. Thank you.
2: Yeah, really we, good. We, we would have loved to actually have you with us, uh, you know, bike. I wish if you, if, if, if you stayed longer, we would have like taken you to this um, really nice trail. It's called the Darb sukkar mm-hmm. the Sukkar Sugar Trail. It's oh, like right. in the Jordan Valley area. That, you know. It's a beautiful trail. I think you will appreciate it.
0: Maybe sometime after lockdown, and I'll get back out to Palestine. I'd absolutely love to ride the sugar trail, uh, maybe on a gravel bike. Thanks to Malak and Sahab there, and sorry for the background noise, but it was a busy hotel for yeah, you know when hotels used to be open. Anyway, because we're still on lockdown and people maybe have more time than usual to listen to podcasts, this episode is. A very, very long one. Uh, But before I play the audio with round-the-world adventurer Julian Soraya, here's my co-host David with
1: a wee bit of a commercial interlude. Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And it's it's always my pleasure to talk about our advertiser. This is a long-time loyal advertiser. You all know who I'm talking about. It's Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. I've been telling you for years now, years, that Jensen is the place where you can get a great selection of every kind of product that you need for your cycling lifestyle at amazing prices. And what really sets them apart, because, of course, there's lots of online retailers out there, but what really sets them apart is their unbelievable support. When you call and you've got a question about something, you'll end up talking to one of their gear advisors. And these are cyclists. I've been there. I've seen it. These are folks who, who ride their bikes to and from work. These are folks who ride at lunch, who go out on group rides after work because they just enjoy cycling so much. Uh, and and so you know that when you call, you'll be talking to somebody who has knowledge Of the products that you're calling about. If you're looking for a new bike, whether it's a mountain bike, a road bike, a gravel bike, a fat bike, what are you looking for? Go ahead and check them out. Jensen USA, they are the place where you will find everything you need for your cycling lifestyle. It's jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. We thank them so much for their support and we thank you for supporting Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, let's get back to the show.
0: Thanks, David. And we are back with a distinctly Palestinian-flavoured episode of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. And before I get complaints about uh, partisanship, because my Guardian article featuring Sohab and Malak did get me labelled with some pretty hateful stuff on Israeli news sites, uh, those wishing to complain may want to check on this show's back catalogue. We've had episodes about the Giro d'Italia, uh, starting in Israel, with David and myself recording audio from Jaffa and Jerusalem, and search at the episode with Israeli Ran Magliot, a former pro-cyclist and co-founder of Israel Cycling Academy and Israel's Bartoli Youth Leadership School. Anyway, let's get on with today's extended episode. Next up is Julian Saraya, author of 50 Miles Wide. Out today, Uh, Julian. I I have read your book. It is a fabulous book. I'm going to ask first of all because I'm I'm a writer, and in fact, we're we're both uh, we're both uh, published authors on Israel. In fact, right. Uh, So that's uh, a a bit of a strange one, uh, a unique thing for for us to be talking about. But first of all, I'd like to ask that there's so much detail in the book. So I'm asking as a writer how did you get is it from memory were you taking really really copious notes were you taking photographs and then you you were you know using that to describe stuff like you were describing things like um you know there's a thistle of a certain color in a certain uh, part of a you know a muddy um, road and it's just incredibly detailed so how are you physically researching this when you're there on the ground (laughs)
3: <laughs> um, it's a good question. I get that asked that a lot, and I think I must just have uh, been somehow a little bit blessed as a travel writer to get a good uh, memory. I mean, I take notes, written notes, which I think is also good for the memory to actually like write in a in paper with pen. I take few photos by and large, and they don't generally the things I have photographed for the most part haven't much appeared in the book. I mean, the thistle you talk about um, is very common at the roadsides of Palestine and um, I remember the first time I was there noticing just how vibrantly blue it was and actually again it's funny that you picked that out because I, I do have one that I pressed in one of my notepads so I have the pressed version of it somewhere. Um, so yeah and I, again I just think that was a particularly vivid and imprinting thing. I think I saw the first one and I was like wow what a beautiful colour um, and then a few days later I must have passed hundreds of them so I think that that in particular is is one of the most uh, common common types of flora at the roadside. Um, and other than that, yeah, I think I just must have a, a fairly good memory. It doesn't feel quite as sharp as it used to. Um, things like dialogue, I find myself jotting down notes as people are speaking a little bit more than I did. Um, but yeah, it just...
0: It... That's my next question, because dialogue, clearly, you've got to get absolutely spot on, especially when you're, you're interviewing people who we'll, we'll, we'll get on to when we're, when we're kind can of talking. Uh, you know, very, very prominent people in the Israeli peace process. Um, so are you recording them or are you always doing notes?
3: Yeah, a couple of times um, I've, I've recorded. Um, I spoke with a hip-hop act in, in Ramallah, who, you know, as musicians were fairly used to the idea of an interview being recorded. Um, Gilly, the negotiator I spoke with, wouldn't have been recorded. They were conversations over a while, and I probably would have gone off after we've spoken and written down immediately, in paper and pen, what was said. And then, as you say, because he's quite a sensitive figure, uh, you know, he's an institutional figure, and to some extent within Israeli negotiations over the decades. And so that's one of the interviews where I, he got sign off, which he hadn't asked for in advance, but just as a courtesy to him and his his standing, I um, I was sure to 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 be absolutely certain that he approved what was going out in his name. Uh, And he was, I mean, obviously. Um, I think in travel writing, and especially when you've got a political dynamic, you're obviously doing nobody any favours unless you're recording the absolute truth. I mean, it it should sort of go without saying. But um, I guess in something like Israel and Palestine, um, so many parties, to to greater or lesser extents, legitimately, Uh, Come to the table with a pre-existing agenda, and I understand the reasons for that. But I think, in terms of just recording with with absolute accuracy, um, people's views and what you see um, is kind of a service in itself.
0: Mm. So my book, written many many years ago uh, in in the nineteen nineties, in fact, uh, was a guidebook. was the Berlitz guidebook to to Israel, which I wrote straight after to my, my university. Uh, degree, which is actually in religion, which which was, which was handy. Um, and that that was a book that, uh even though it was a, a general guidebook and it had nothing to do with bicycles whatsoever, I did the research for that book from the saddle of a of a, a bicycle, yeah. which is a good way of going into to your book because Israel is such a small country. You can and Palestine is a small. Uh, uh part of uh that part of the world there is it's easy to get basically if you're a fit cyclist you can get to the, the from the the uh from Ilat in the south up to to haifa and, and north uh in in a day if you, if you if you're pretty fit so your book is called 50 miles wide which is basically alluding to that 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 that, that smallness of this this part of the world that is actually massive in the news, yet is tiny on the ground.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's funny we have another commonality there in that my first job out of university was also with Berlitz, but as an English teacher in Istanbul. <laughs> so, it's, um, but yeah, it's. Um, I mean, the bicycle, as as always, really is an amazing. It's an amazing way to see anywhere. I find, um, and especially a place the is the the nature of the politics, the conflict, whatever we call it, the dispute is so rooted in the land, and the bicycle is such an immersive way of seeing that land, especially when it's kind of beset with checkpoints and razor wire and and obviously the the wall that Israel constructed to to separate itself from Palestine and which divides you know Palestinian villages from their farmland and all kinds of things the the immediacy. Of the landscape in that way, I think is is apparent um, in in no ways more than than when you're on a bicycle, um, and and yeah, fifty miles wide. As the title, I think when I was looking at maps prior to my first visit and and realising literally how easy it was, how short comparatively it would be to cover the distances. And, it, you know, and certainly the West Bank um, and parts of it up towards Golan are very hilly. So I think those those um, 50 miles as the crow flies can sort of like concertina out into sort of longer distances. But, yeah, it's very small. And I think that that kind of is reflected to an extent in the politics um, if you kind of imagine something like a pressure cooker, which is maybe an an unfortunate example in some ways, but, you know, villages and particularly Israeli settlements in, in the occupied territories are all so close together. Uh, <laughs> there is, in lots of ways, very little space, even geographically, for the tension and, and the trauma that accumulates with the attacks that go on or, or whatever. The space, or the lack of space, allows very, very little room for the the build-up of tension to dissipate. Um, So, yeah, I think it's a a really massive part of it, and I do think, from an external point of view, it's kind of why geography and, and in some ways, our lack of familiarity with the Middle East and the terrain of it. becomes a problem in in understanding these conflicts and these politics from the outside because it is I mean even me I'm half Turkish I, I know my, my mother hitchhikes around Israel in the sixties I'd like to think that I I know the Middle East to some fair degree but still fifty miles wide when I first noticed that it, it's yeah as you say it's it's kind of striking um, and then I do think on some levels it's hard to understand an area and a politics if you don't understand its geography, if you don't necessarily understand even how its map reads. Um, and then, as you mentioned, this the Middle East as a whole is an absolutely vast section of land, and uh, often the, the, the way that we reduce it down to very simple elements, whether that's Israel, Palestine, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia... Um, you know these these countries are larger and more spread apart, spread apart than Poland, Austria, Russia, UK, France, and, and it would seldom be expected for people to have a particularly insightful um and, and deep knowledge of the politics of all of these, or uh, all, all of uh, so many European countries, say. And yet, in, in the Middle East, there's often a sense that you know we can reduce the these millions, hundreds of millions of people, and thousands of miles to their regimes, their flags, and a sort of polit- political sort of situation that you can sum up in a sentence or two.
0: Mm. In the prologue, so I'm going to go back to bicycle. This is a bicycling podcast, so I'm going to... Absolutely, I want to go into politics, geopolitics, uh, travel Right, I want to go into all of that in, in this conversation, but I would like to <laughs> absolutely zoom into the, into the bicycle part of this, uh, and that is, in the prologue, you talk about... Uh, Arriving on a bicycle anywhere, and, and I absolutely agree with this because I've certainly experienced it, you are treated as innocent. So that's what you say in there, you know, because it, it, a bicycle is to many people is a, is a play thing. It's something that their children use. And then somebody coming up, you know, arriving on a bicycle is is unthreatening. So is that you, you you definitely made that conscious decision. You could have you could have walked in Israel. You could have driven around Israel with with Arab drivers. You could have done all sorts of different things. But was it a very conscious decision to use a bicycle because that is a signifier of unthreatening person, slightly maybe odd person?
3: Um, Yeah, it's got that eccentricity factor for whatever reason. Um, I mean, to me, you know, it's 11, no, 10, 11 years now since I cycled around the world. Um, I broke the world record for the circumnavigation. And actually this whole point of the bicycle is innocence. I think there's a moment on the Canadian US border on that trip where the U.S. border guards, who can sometimes be a little bit gnarly, were sort of, you know, where, where are you going to? And I was like, Tijuana at that point. <laughs> and they're like, oh, you're cycling to Mexico. Yeah, sure thing. Through you go. And I just remember on that instance that it that it really sort of diffused any tension. And so it, the bicycle in lots of ways has always just been the way that I travel. It's it's the go-to way. Um And then the the book, in lots of ways, started out at Edinburgh Book Festival, actually, and talking with an Israeli author. And and I mentioned, uh, you know, my travel by bicycle and this idea that you see politics at the side of the road, best of all, on a bike. And she'd kind of suggested, wow, I mean, a bicycle, you'd really see the reality of Palestine and Israel um, in very close quarters. Um, So I think that kind of planted the seed in some ways. And so a mixture of that sort of external suggestion actually from an Israeli that I'd see the reality of Palestine very clearly by bicycle, my own you know I grew up riding a bicycle really i i was um you know i was born in born in the mid well born in london grew up in the midlands um in a pretty sort of post industrial area and having a bicycle was absolutely my way of getting out of this quite unremarkable place um you know, from a, a small town um, to get in, even into the lanes of Leicestershire, it was this sense of freedom. And I do think a bicycle kind of resonates to you know to all those who love what it is to be on a bicycle and to feel the wind on your cheeks and in your hair and pedalling and this sort of you know the motion and the grace in motion of just riding. It's, it's such a kind of a pure form of, of travel. I think to those that have known it, um, and in in some ways that kind of you know that physicality even that very sort of sense of freedom is in itself in, in in kind of stark contrast to a lot of the politics of of Palestine Palestine in particular where you know you've got cycling clubs and the guys can't necessarily go for bike rides because of military checkpoints because you've got maybe three checkpoints between Hebron and Jerusalem and so, you know, even little things like a road, you know, your average cycling club in the UK where you're thinking about, you know, your wattage or your average speeds or your, your total time or your personal bests. You know, if you've got a grumpy conscript uh, who's only an Israeli teenager, possibly uh, having a bad day and deciding to make life miserable for you as you go for a bike ride, that whole sense of joy and the freedom of being on the bike gets compromised. Um So, yeah, the the bicycle in some ways is kind of woven into that way of of being in the land or or, or the way that so many Palestinian cyclists I met talk about it equally. They still have this sense that riding a bicycle is amazing. Um, And so there's also that innocence, as you say, but also this kind of universality of everyone kind of knows what it is. To, to, to ride a bike you know that first memory you have of when you first learn to ride a bike or that first time maybe you go for a bike ride that bit further than you have done previously and, and the way it, it resonates
0: and in in the book you talk about uh, the bicycle being a leveler for those so that the, the the palestinian cyclists if they got togged up in in cycling gear the the Israelis would treat them almost as though they were Israeli because they look Israeli because they've got cycling gear on.
3: Yeah, exactly. Um yeah, it's a funny one. Uh this kind of assumption. If you've got your road bike and you dropped handlebars and your lycra maybe your wrap around shades. Uh yeah, there's just an assumption that, that road cycling is an Israeli thing, you know, with a good bike being an Israeli thing. So yeah, it's fantastic. And again really comes back to this idea of freedom, that this assumption when you're going up to a checkpoint that you're probably Israeli if you're on a decent bike with decent gear, means that some Palestinians who don't have the right to travel in in what is essentially their own land, all of it from the river to the sea in some ways, um, because all of that land should be free for people to move in. And and they can kind of transcend those restrictions by being on a bicycle because of the the strength of the assumption that oh it's probably an Israeli and they just get w- waved on through, and so to be speaking to Palestinian cyclists from Hebron, which is of course right in the middle of the territory, and who have never seen the sea, um, and they'd they'd ridden to the sea at, at Jaffa, in you know just south of Tel Aviv um or up to Haifa even and and that kind of very emotional sense of journey of actually we get to go and see the sea uh, i mean i'm sure there are some uh there are permits and you know travel passes that allow people to travel from the west bank into what is israeli territory and therefore go to the sea but the fact that there's something that little bit clandestine about the bicycle um that you can just sort of steal your way through I almost feel bad talking about it in some ways because it's a fantastic practice that obviously happens a little bit secretively, and I hope it can continue to do so. Um, but now, can I
0: can imagine it's it's partly this, you like the, the the mammal type factor. You know, it's bicycling in in, in this country and in Israel is partly you know a, a now an elitist thing to do. So if you're walking around and or coming into checkpoints and you're you're wearing what is considered to be elitist gear, then you are going to be waved through a bit more. Um, there is that perception of, of cycling being you know very different for different class of people in 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 some respects, even though at exactly the same time, cycling is for poor people. It's it. it, it. It, it, it confuses people because it just confounds their expectations
3: yeah absolutely and I mean you know maybe a, a Palestinian lad who works in a bike shop or in a in a hostel has to save up more of his wages to buy this you know his team outfit that he wants to wear <coughs> than your you know a stockbroker in Tel Aviv might but he still loves I, just as when I grew up I really loved saving up some money and was really happy to get my United States Postal Service jersey um you know, it still happens. And, I mean, I, I I think you're right as well. It sort of points to this uh, elitism, which is obviously the assumption that gets people waved through a checkpoint. But, you know, as we know, the bicycle, and again, this word of being a leveller, I mean, all of these differences that get thrown up by borders, by walls, by, by documents, are, you know, they're so immaterial and illusory. And I, I think there have been instant, you know, it, it's very sad. I spoke to one lad who from Ramallah, you know, rides um, rides mountain bikes primarily because he doesn't like the checkpoints. So you kind of have that interesting dynamic that the, the spatial nature of the conflict mediates people's decisions about how they might ride. They might be more likely to ride trails than on the road because of the, the, the absence of checkpoints. But even there, you know, he would say that he'd met settlers out on the, the mountain bike trails and stuff, who you know often just receiving it's a very simple case of racism the the issue at, at root he, he's an Arab you know and of course he's an Arab <laughs> and that's that means nothing other than you know it's an ethnic background it's a language it's a culture just as just as Jewishness is just as it is, as it is to be British and out on the trails he's encountered racism I think he, you know he made no secret of the fact that he'd also had good moments where that kind of kinship and that community of the bicycle can kind of transcend these utterly immaterial ethnic differences that we have and ultimately that's actually in lots of ways what i'd want the goal of the book um to be and its message and you know the the role of the bicycle in the region i I think it is it's something that that gives people a reminder of, of how much we have in common essentially and how illusory the the differences are um but yeah so he he'd taken more to trail riding to to avoid the checkpoints of the roads but then equally you'll have people that maybe go join rambling and walking clubs because in in two hours of walking uh you're going to encounter fewer um settlements or checkpoints or or blocks than you would in two hours of riding so it's really interesting again this kind of geographic spatial thing that when you're in a a terrain, as most of us in the West are, that you can just take for granted your freedom of movement. Um, it, it gets completely compromised in a, in a in a militarized space, which is what Palestine and certainly the occupied territories is. I
0: was interested to hit uh, to, to read that uh, some of the cyclists you are talking to, the roadies, uh, they had actually snuck across to to watch the Giro in in Israel, which must have been quite. A difficult uh, for them to do, and and B politically charged back home as well.
3: Yeah, I think I mean I can't remember if I mentioned people sneaking across it. one guy that I spoke to had said that he specifically is from Ramallah and um, you know, residents of East Jerusalem, despite not having the right to vote in in Jerusalem or Israeli elections. Are able to move into Jerusalem, so they could have gone to see it easily. The guy, one guy I spoke to in Ramallah, hadn't been able to go, and he said that he would have done. He, you know, he would have been really excited to see this um, international bike race with famous riders that he he knew and really respected. Uh, he would have gone to to watch it, but he didn't have the right to travel there, so he wasn't able to. And I think that was a contentious. That you know his position on that was itself quite contentious because there are, um, I think it was an Israeli Canadian real estate magnate who paid the money, which was quite a lo- a massive sum, for the Giro to start in Jerusalem in in 2018. So that in itself isn't, you know, an instance of what's being called sports washing now because it was tied to Trump's suggestion that, um, you know, Jerusalem is the undivided capital of Israel, moving the US embassy and stuff like that. So even the in existence of the, the stage there was politicized in that way, and some of the guys, for example, at Rouleur and other people in the peloton, were quite good at making a making a statement of you know this is being this is politicized, and you know we often say that um, sport or cycling, whatever it's to be, can't be politicized, shouldn't be politicized. But often what it's doing is inherently politicising. It's just normally done to sort of endorse a business as usual that um, is mostly unquestioned. So the guy that I spoke to was saying that he didn't really care about that, he would have just quite liked to have watched the race. Even he would have sort of had some pushback from some of his Palestinian mates suggesting that that was, you you know, endorsing this idea of a unified Israeli Jerusalem. Um, and this is, again, as with the choice of whether, whether you go rambling, mountain biking or road cycling because of the territory being so un, so controlled. And, and again, this whole 50 miles wide thing, perhaps uh, every decision there becomes so heavily politicized because ultimately the contention that the Palestinians is, is, are facing at root is a denial of their right to exist a denial of the fact that they were there a denial of the fact that you know their their grandparents literally their grandparents had their houses taken away um from you know when jewish paramilitaries were settling the occupied territories after 1948 i mean these are these are very very recent memories um and so it, it's really hard for for People to just find, um, you know, a depoliticized space in some ways, where where things aren't contentious. I mean, you see, you have Palestinians who cycle in Gaza who have been, you know, shot at by by Israeli soldiers and snipers. It's like the the extent to which we, as, as cyclists in the West, are, are able to take for granted the the space and the conditions and the movement that underpins cycling because it is this amazing invention that allows you to travel so much further and faster than you normally could on your own as a human and and that kind of pure experience of this this vehicle and this invention is it's still felt by Palestinian cyclists but again as I say it's so compromised by the political and territorial constraints that people have to mm-hmm. live under.
0: So the billionaire, the, the Canadian Israeli billionaire you mentioned there, is called Sylvan Adams, and she right. interviewed Sylvan at uh, when at the Giro because he was the guy who brought the Giro in, and he part funded the Israeli well, it was the Israeli Cycling Academy, the the the, the pro yeah. team. Um, uh, when when so that was in a piece of in in the Guardian that I interviewed him. Uh, now he. He's interesting in that he's not just interested in in, in pro cycling. Yes, he's, of course, he, he, he did Aliyah, which means like he emigrated to Israel from, from Canada. He's obviously um, intensely nationalistic, um, but he's also intensely um, cycling focused. So a lot of his money in Israel is actually being spent on bicycle infrastructure. So you've now got the Sylvan Adams bicycle network. Yeah. Um, just uh, <laughs> uh, northwest of Tel Aviv, um, the, there's a velodrome gone up, which is the Sylvan Adams velodrome. So I would like to yeah. think that maybe uh, through cycling there can be some, some meeting of minds that cycling transcends all of the crap
3: absolutely i mean and that's always my hope as well um and i think that it's not a you know it's not a baseless hope i think there's reason to believe it can help in those respects um but it can't happen on its own um i mean again you know a friend from ramallah was invited recently to to ride in in switzerland i think it was and israel blocked his visa at the last moment you know so i definitely agree that there's a you know, there's a role for the bicycle to play in this, you know, this meeting of minds and bringing people together, forming a community. But it it has to happen alongside other things around freedom of movement for Palestinians, around freedom to travel, around visas, um, mm. around the m- removal of checkpoints. And yeah, I, did, I, I mean, this is talk, to talk about it from a sort of very Israel Palestinian side, which I think is illusory. There are a lot of people in Israel who don't like. Being military occupiers who don't like paying for Israeli soldiers and, and conscripts to guard religious, quite extreme religious settlers inside the occupied West Bank who don't want, um, who don't want the reality on the ground to exist as it currently does, and and again I think cycling is you know there's a kind of crossover often between cycling types, and I don't necessarily even think leftists at all. I think it's unfair to put it in that way. But when you're riding a bicycle in a sort of car dominated society, which is basically the world, you're kind of seeing a different way of doing things. Um, And you're also, even if you are this quite well-to-do white male, say when you're on the road, suddenly you're vulnerable again. You know, you've got, Mm. it doesn't, it only takes some idiot in a car who maybe earns less than you, who maybe doesn't have as many university degrees as you, whatever. Can still make you feel very vulnerable and put your very life in danger. And I think that sense of vulnerability um, and space and the fact that our road networks are inherently politicised in how much space they give to cars, how much space they give to cyclists, that actually that's almost quite an interesting starting point on understanding the political dynamics of, say, Israel and Palestine. Because it's again a it's a, a situation again of um, people being denied space and people being made vulnerable in that space and, and one of the, the first guys that I speak to um a guy who's a cycle cycle cycling tourist um sorry touring cyclist that was the term I was looking for uh, and I stay with him in Tel Aviv and he's someone that had obviously been very involved in the Tel Aviv community to get Uh, cycling networks put in and he talks about who would have been doing that 15 years ago. And it was kind of the the weird sort of like eccentric thing. And now everyone in Tel Aviv loves riding a bike and he's kind of sort of more, he's gravitated much more towards doing work around Palestine and Israel because it's almost, it's kind of in some ways similar to what we might've seen in a city like London, where the people who 10 years ago were going out on a limb to say, build these bike, bike paths. Um, give us segregated cycle lanes have now won so much of that fight that it's it's actually and and thankfully being normalized to some extent so someone there who's his activist experience is initially in in urban design uh is now looking more at palestine and israel and, and is well aware that there are people on both sides of these walls who love riding bikes and and yeah, it's, um, it's, it's very much a, a way of of bringing people together and, and also just seeing cultural change. I, I think he would suggest that uh, Mikhail, um, the, the guy in Tel Aviv, would have suggested that when they were first talking about bikes in, in Israel, there was the idea of, oh, it's a Middle Eastern country, it's too hot, people like cars, cycling isn't part of the culture. Uh, and now you even have the mayor of Tel Aviv saying we want to make Tel Aviv a cycling city or you have these bike trails across the country and so at root as well that's an example of cultural change happening the fact that the thing that is laughed at or belittled as being impossible or it will never work here can happen which I, I do think there's an inherent optimism in that when when you look at something like Palestine and, and Israel and, and the impasse there and and how hard it can seem to get justice done often. Actually, there is the potential for people's minds to change and something that sounds crazy at one point to become very fashionable and and suddenly what everyone wants.
0: Well, when I was in Israel, when I lived in Israel, I lived in Israel for for a year in the the mid-1980s, I I stuck out like a sore thumb on a bicycle. Certainly, no, no bicycle paths have I lived with an, uh, an Israeli guy who later got so distant, uh really didn't like the, the Israeli system uh, of going in the army all the time and stuff, and he actually moved away. He lives in Mexico now. Uh, but he was, it was so unusual to see a cyclist that we immediately bonded, uh, because in Israel there was just no bikes. And now there are lots of bikes, but a lot of them are, are, are electric bikes, and uh, which would be illegal in this country in that they are they are powered electric bikes but you're right it has absolutely changed and if if that can change in such a in it is a car-centric society then there is sort of a smidgen of hope
3: yeah definitely i mean there is always hope um i mean the palestinians in particular are just such a they're an amazing source of resilience um Ultimately, it's very hard to take people's dignity away from them, and you see it. I mean, it, it's kind of interesting an idea of where a sense of freedom comes from and where that hope comes from. Um, when and when you're certainly younger, say millennial Palestinians who have grown up grown up with um, the border wall. And, and such extreme segregation within the West Bank, they still have a very strong sense of of what freedom is. You know, they still rap mm-hmm. with these incredibly sort of forceful lyrics about their home. They still ride bikes and love it. They still like, are, are in love with this fact that they can actually like creep through a checkpoint and get to the sea at Haifa. Um, you know, they they play music or, or dance. And I think again it's this kind of immutable sense of of where free what what induces freedom and all that sense of freedom. And I definitely think that riding a bicycle is one of those things. So you can, and uh, nature in general, you know, you see a sunset, you descend a mountain. I mean, it's the most beautiful terrain and, and, and country and land through which to cycle. And I think there's there's so much kind of natural beauty and sort of majesty in the settings that, you know, you you, you sort of like feed your soul from that, essentially and and it, it gives people the ability to, you know, yeah, to go on believing that, you know, justice will get done, that, that peace will come. I mean, there is really very little... I've never really encountered much animosity whatsoever towards Israelis even, and certainly not Jews amongst Palestinians. I mean, the foremost grievance is their desire for mobility, for travel, for rights, for, for the, the sort of access to a full life that, that we in the West just absolutely take for granted. And, and um, yeah, I think with with those justices served, I, I think there's, there's always going to be opportunity for, for you know, communities to form. And then as someone who loves cycling as much as I do and who's already d- always done it. And, you know, similarly, I've done youth work in London with kids from very well-off backgrounds and kids who grew up on estates. And... Uh, they've always remarked on the same thing of how you know the bicycle was was performed as this leveler it gives people something in common um and again i I think as a you know a metaphor in some ways the way that a bicycle can change a transport system uh i think it it can be the the facilitator in in changing other ways of thinking and ways of seeing a world and its politics and and the people in
0: it. back to you so um i think people see bicycles and it brings out the best in them that's a lovely quote
3: <laughs> yeah
0: it it happening <laughs> not uh, everywhere uh but it is it, that that's a nice quote from from, from your book
3: yeah no well, I, I think it does um and as we say it's like that sense of innocence um you know, it's very interesting. On say something like the the larger checkpoints at um, a camp like Kalandia, just on the edge of the West Bank, and the Palestinians going back through the checkpoint have to go through these very militarized turnstiles, and the cars drive through on the roads, and there's always this interesting factor for me to consider that here I am riding a bicycle so of course I've got a vehicle I'm not going to go through a checkpoint turnstile pen I wouldn't fit but equally I'm obviously not in a in a box of metal and glass in a car so it's this sort of fantastic sort of ambiguity in the middle where you're not quite a machine but you're definitely not only a human (laughs) in your way of in your way of moving and and I think yeah it's that it's that essence of doing things differently. It's that I remember what it was to learn to balance when riding a bike. I remember the first time I decided to sort of like really go for it, going down a hill thinking, yeah, I think I can balance. Um, and, and yeah, people who have you know taught their kids how to ride a bike and seen that freedom come along. And I think also on a bicycle, you can't really do an awful lot of harm to anybody and you're still very personal. You know, you're still obviously a human being. Um, in a way that yeah cars really you know they really shut us off from ourselves and from one another and i think the very fact of a of a car windscreen you know we spend our lives in front of computer screens you know we we take a break off and now looking at a telephone screen we we watch tv to relax in front of another screen and then people move to work behind a windscreen it's like the entire world becomes kind of mediated through right-angled rectangles and um, it's, it's almost by definition of uh, it limits our view whereas you're on a bicycle you've got you know you've got full 360 degree or maybe 340 degree vision um, you know you can feel the elements and, and you're moving yourself and, and yeah we're, we're living in a very kind of automated mechanized digitalized age and I think it's a big part of the, the appeal and the allure of the bicycle at, at this moment in history. And I think you see in it really sort of blossoming within cities, first of all, because people are kind of somewhat starved of a sense of, you know, what is it to be human? You know, what is the life that I want to want to live? Like, you know, I live in London and often my favourite part of the day, the time when I think most and best is my half hour cycling to wherever it is I'm going to get to and half hour cycling home afterwards. Um, and I think that's one of the really special things about, uh, cycle touring. You, you just, that becomes your life, you know, that becomes, uh, you know, a very sort of fundamental motion of, of travel, of stopping and eating. You're hungry when you eat. So you really savor your food. Uh, you know, you sleep out in the deserts under the stars in a place like Palestine and, um, yeah, it's a kind of reminder of how we could be living somehow. <laughs> uh,
0: the same page. And I know I've got the, the digital version, not the print version, so maybe it's not the same page in the print version. But on the same page as that quote I mentioned, um, I think people see bicycles and it brings out the best in them. There's another quote that jumped out at me, and this is it goes straight into the political, um, because you, you didn't shy away from from talking uh, political uh, stuff with with both sides. Um, but this this one was was, was qu- I quite like it, and it, it, uh, perhaps even got resonance for 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 Brexit. And that is so. This is, but we are talking about the the, the Israel Palestine conflict here, is and that is the solution, if there is one, is always one that nobody likes. Both sides <laughs> have to hate it, and I mention that because we have a peace plan. So, <laughs> I'm doing air quotes here. We have a the Trump peace plan where. One side loves it, the other side hates it. Well, that ain't going to work. So, so have you talked to to your contacts across there about the Trump plan, the Kushner plan, and and what they think about it on both sides? Or, and what do you think of the, that particular ah, plan?
3: Yeah. I mean, it, it's a farce, it's a joke. You know, it's been rejected throughout the region, in, including, you know, by countries like Saudi Arabia that are increasingly close to Israel, um, because there still is a sense that, you know, this the Palestinian issue is is such... It goes to the heart, really, of, of the region in lots of ways, and, and it has to be uh, an equitable and just settlement. So... I think, you know, at a diplomatic level, it's been mostly ignored. You know, I think there was, what, $50 billion worth of of funding that Trump and Kushner were hoping to put together. So really it's more like a peace bribe than a peace plan. It's like if we can give the Palestinian Authority enough money to sort of make this go away. But, you know, again, geography doesn't lie. And if you look at the, the map that was put forward, um as the proposal you know that's that's no territory that's no country there. no, there's no real hope that what's left on the ground there could could form a sort of viable mobile um community of people connected to one another um so that's a, a sort of political level culturally like you know my friends in palestine who You know, I, I follow them on social media, you know, it was absolutely water off a duck's back to them. They weren't expecting anything and their sort of social media output across the day. You know, I had my friends who were interested in fashion were maybe like adding photos to their Instagram feed that day of, you know, textiles that they were working with or templates they were working on. My friends who were into bicycles were posting little videos from their bike rides. You know, it's like, it didn't happen. Um, and my friends in Israel, you know, some of them who are involved in the political process, you know, particularly Gilly who's featured in the book, um, you know, his training is as a lawyer. So his job is not really to you know, he's not essentially a sort of he's certainly not a campaigner or a politicized guy, he sort of seeks to to shape what an institutional response would look like. And so he sort of did a sort of pretty dry analysis of, you know, what is this proposal? How does it stack up compared to those proposals that we saw in in the 90s with Arafat and Rabin? And, you know, I think there's, there's a recognition that Trump and Kushner, having not spoken to the Palestinians for something like the last three years, weren't ever really gonna come up with something that that offered much to the Palestinians and and so yeah I I think this will this will will just be like a little burp in history almost um you know Trump is a very controversial figure in the White House he's very close to Netanyahu and uh, and the Israeli ideal uh, and yeah as, as you say like everyone has to hate it I think that's uh a pretty crude way of looking at um how something gets settled but i i would suggest there's probably some unfortunate truth in it and i really don't think that the you know the israelis certainly not benjamin netanyahu i don't think they have any problems at all with this proposal as it as it's put forward and and it's a proposal you could never accept really and and it's good that the palestinian leadership which is often very close to the israeli state you know you could argue that the palestinian authority just provides sort of security services for on behalf of israel within the occupied territories um you know there are heavy problems of corruption there within that body so it's good that they also said you know this is this is not just this is not equitable this is not dignity Um, And I mean, I think the main thing is, and actually, I think you'd find increasingly secular Israelis, left wing Israelis who, who are targeted with, you know, as you mentioned, Brexit, left wing Israelis are targeted with the most sort of vile and intimidating forms of abuse, far greater than anything that I think the remain leave divide in the UK ever would have stoked. You know, this isn't a way for Israel to go about living within their own country. And again, to, to put it in terms of Brexit, with um, you know, in the UK or in the US the last few years with Brexit or with Trump, we've seen how intense and unpleasant it can be living with this really deep, festering political cleave down the heart of your nation. And, and to be honest, that's what Israel does. And you can't really live in denial of that fact. Um, and so this whole thing of like being pro-Israel or pro-Palestine, I mean, ultimately, the pro-justice case is actually is found on both sides. You know, as the book talks about people in, um, you know, in Israel that are very much a part of a movement for justice and for peace. And, and obviously the Palestinians, too. I, I think there's often a lot more common cause than than squeezes out into the news.
0: In in the chapter, and it is it is entitled Sperm Smuggling. Um, so we discussed that. Um, but there's a there's a there's a a war going on and that war is to have as many babies as possible so on the palestinian side you can you can describe where the sperm smuggling comes from but on the israeli side especially on the uh uh the the radical religious right settler community um but certainly even though not the settler community but the 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 haredi community the the, the orthodox community they're at yeah. pumping out as many babies as they, they possibly can. So it's a, it's a war to try and get as many people on the ground because people on the ground need houses. And if you've got houses, that it e- e- equals um, space uh, taken over, which is territory, which is then basically political um, absolutes. So tell us about and smuggling, and what are people putting into plastic bags and then hoping?
3: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's one of the many stories, I guess, in the book that just becomes a bit unbelievable somewhat. But, um, yeah, I mean, the the Jewish extremist who um, assassinated Yitzhak Rabin, the Israeli prime minister in, in the 90s, um, has unsurri- was unsurprisingly locked up for life um, in in Ramon Prison, and then successfully petitioned the state for visits from his wife. Um, conjugal visits. And pardon, Colin, didn't Conjugal quite catch that.
0: visits, in other words, they, 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 they <laughs> could do things that you wouldn't normally expect prisoners or somebody in a, in a prison to do with his wife.
3: Exactly. So he had some successful conjugal visits from his wife. Um, You know, father to family. And, um, you know, having assassinated the prime minister of of Israel for the the crime of risking peace with the Palestinians, um, you know, you can make a case of, well, if conjugal visits are an entitlement, he should have had, who knows. But either way, if he for that crime can nevertheless receive conjugal visits and start a family, uh, you know, you would expect that the same could be afforded to Palestinian prisoners, some of whom are locked up on spurious charges, maybe for things as innocuous as throwing stones rather than assassinating the Prime Minister of Israel. Um, and needless to say, those those legal petitions on behalf of Palestinian prisoners um, failed to, to materialise, and so Palestinian prisoners were not allowed conjugal visits. And um the world being endlessly innovating as it is, um, <laughs> this sort of trend of sperm smuggling came about where um Palestinians would have their sperm smuggled out of out of prison during visits. And uh yeah, the idea <laughs> being that often they're held maybe in the cleavage of a woman's breasts or in inside a plastic sachet or in an armpit to keep it at sort of body temperature. And then there are fertility clinics, one in Nablus and one in Ramallah, where Palestinian doctors essentially see it as providing, you know, a service to a a woman who is often unjustly estranged from her husband and who may want to start a family. Um, They provide fertility treatment sort of pro bono. So, yeah, it's become this kind of interesting and quite extreme feature of the, you know, the demographic war, which I think is a term that's actually used somewhat um, on the it ground. Is also, where both you're making little it.
0: soldiers. That's, that's the other side of this. This is not just let's have children. It's let's make little soldiers so they can carry on fighting each other in the future.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of less violent than that in lots of ways. I think, in you know, as much as anything, it's making new voters. Um, you know, the, the reason why the demographic thing is so prominent is because Israel... You know, the intention is to have a Jewish state with a Jewish majority, um, which is why the Palestinians have to be denied democracy. I mean, and this is why you have this really sad and um, really challenging sort of admiration coming from white supremacist, anti-Semitic US in particular, far right, who really like the state of Israel, because it's based on this idea of an, uh, an ethnic majority, you know, the idea that you can have a Jewish majority and that people can be denied the right to vote because you threaten that Jewish majority. So, you know, I almost think if you could, like, guarantee that um, if you could guarantee the Netanyahu family and the nationalists of Israel that there would always be 30% more Jewish people between the river and the sea than Palestinians... Arabs, Muslims, w- whatever they might be, Christians too, because a, a lot of you know the Bedouin population also has a very hard time of it under Israeli occupation. It, it's often Christian, but if you could guarantee the fact that you'd always have a um, a Jewish majority, I think that uh, you know that you could probably find some kind of uh, improvement in the situation. But of course you can't guarantee such things and Arab people have families often large families as well um so yeah it's it's as i say this demographic warfare and and fertility is a very interesting part of of the politics and of the situation i mean you things like the you know the israeli jewish religious community has much has has taken much more keenly to things like ivf treatment or even same sex parenting than other equivalent religious groups, I'd say, around the world, because there is a sense of actually producing more children, uh, you know, is, is a duty to Israel, just as much as the Palestinians might see it as producing, producing. Um, you know, starting a family. Um And there are some really fascinating and often quite dark knock-on effects of this as well. You know, you have the market for surrogate mothers. So there's a lot of, you know, Filipino women that were sort of providing that kind of, you know, in utero services (laughs) almost in that respect. Or um, examples of soldiers, male soldiers who have died and had their parents want to harvest their sperm to sort of do artificial insemination with an egg donor after their child has died, um, you know. So this kind of intense focus on demographics and numbers really—it's is probably another way in which this whole situation on the ground becomes very unnatural, mm. and and every bit as much for the Israelis as the Palestinians. And often, I think, when you're so immersed in the politics and the, and the, the conflict of it all people can lose sight of how how far Israel has strayed from what is a kind of natural kind of healthy um yeah so, uh, way to go about life and the world when you're not immersed in this- int- intense politicization of everything I, I, as you mentioned with your friend in Israel who decided to leave and go to live in Mexico. I mean, likewise, I have Israeli friends in London who just don't want to hear anything about any of it and definitely don't want to live in that country. Um, So, yeah, I mean, this, this very intense politicization, which is everywhere. And in the book, I do think the bicycle, it's the thing that cuts through that and just takes you back to some pure estate that's less troubled. Um, Yeah, it's it's definitely a a big question.
0: (laughs) Mm. And, Let's go, let's go backwards. We couldn't even started on this really, but you did, you did kind of mention it in passion, passing. And I will, of course, have mentioned it in the introduction that you won't uh, have heard, which I'll kind of tag at the beginning of the show. But tell us where you've come from in that you did say you, you, you were the, the fastest around the world. So, so go back to that. So, so tell us more about that particular journey, that particular book.
3: Um, that was, yes, yeah, so that was my first book, "Life Cycles." Um, I mean, the story of that I I'd cycle I've cycled now about half a dozen times to Istanbul with Turkey being my, my second nation. Um, and in 2000 2007, I, I met a couple of uh, touring cyclists who were on their way around the world in Istanbul, and they mentioned the guy who now a fairly known name in cycle touring, Mark Beaumont, and he was breaking a record for a circumnavigation i looked it up on the internet i think he averaged 90 miles a day or something that first time he went around the world and more than anything i mean we were about the same age early 20s politics graduates and um both yeah both obviously loved life lived on a bicycle and um it really sort of stuck in my craw a bit, the very corporate nature of of what he was doing. You know, it was lots of banking endorsements and a hotel chain, Um, you know, Orange, the telephone company went on to sponsor it as well. And then a a branch of Lloyd, a a wing, a division of Lloyd's bank. So it was this very, um, you know, corporatized version of adventure and corporatized version of, of cycling. Um, And, you know, I was 23, 24 years old and, had lived, you know, fantastic memories, moments, some of the purest moments of my life really, lived on the bicycle with my my life in my panniers over the back wheel, you know, and just going over quiet mountain passes and having farmers give you food for a meal at the end of a day. And, you know, my politics as they are as well, the idea that all of this could just be packaged up and sold to a bank as part of their, their marketing strategy just seemed a real betrayal of what cycling and life on a bicycle was to me. But then also the maybe a sense that everyone has a bit of ownership, you know, the idea that the bicycle is this is this invention, is this vehicle, it is loved around the world. And and I didn't want to see it um, you know, sold away like that. So I, I set out to break his world record, which which I did. Um By about a month at the time, um with a first leg going from Normandy, <laughs> I went through Central Asia to Shanghai um and then a bit of Southeast Asia and New Zealand, uh, and then a big arc from North America from Vancouver to Tijuana to Florida to Boston, uh flight to Lisbon and then rode back sprint finish to Normandy so that was really my first big ride um as a as a cycling um cycling traveler. And that's also the first book, Life Cycles. Um and yeah, that's how I kind of got into this whole thing of writing politics at the side of the road sort of thing.
0: And you make money? Question Yeah, just
3: about <laughs> No, just about. I mean, I'm I'm not getting rich quick. I mean and, and you know, Beaumont just uh he just broke his well he broke my record that record's fallen a number of times over the years um he just did a a very fast circumnavigation which I think is rumored to have cost somewhere like half a million pounds um so I'm not bringing in half a million pounds worth of money to to fund my rides um with a a camper van following me and a team on board um but yeah you know you, you get by and and I'm I've got quite a strong background in political science. So it's kind of, that's a, I think I'm a bit unusual in having this very strong commitment to to life on a bike and to the bicycle, um, but also being kind of interested as an analyst also in, in politics and political economy. Uh, so I've somehow carved out a little niche, which if you'd have told me 10 years ago I was going to do, uh, I would have laughed at you. <laughs>
0: So how long do you spend in Israel? Because you, you were going, it is a small country, we've discussed that, you're going backwards and forwards, you know, one minute you're in uh, Tel Aviv, the next minute you're in Hebron. Uh, so how long were you actually there uh, researching this book?
3: Yeah, in twenty, I was there in 2018 for six weeks, um, with, uh, across two visits, a shorter visit in the summer, And then uh, I was back for a month at the the very end of 2018, Um, which is kind of, you know, it's good to sort of visit a couple of times. And I've got friends from Israel and from Palestine who I'm obviously still in contact with, and I'll get in touch and ask them when the Israeli elections are happening or, you know, see what's basically going on, really. So I've kind of mainly in the last few years have come to develop quite a yeah quite a, a strong connection to to both countries uh palestine israel or one country whatever it's going to be in the future who knows um and people in both places um but yeah it was it was 6 weeks in total on the ground that year
0: i, d- I don't think you've got much chance to get your pal um israel name flying anytime soon so you mentioned that one of the potentials that's like i can't see that happening and that's because of the religion because, of course, why, why is this bit of dirt in the Middle East uh, quite so important? Well, it is a beautiful place. Yeah, there's all sorts of reasons why you know people may, may fight over it. But generally, quite apart from the nationalism, which is uh, underpinned by the religion, it is that religious thing. So that's why it's going to be so difficult to, say, change a name. That's why it's going to be so difficult to get people out of uh, the West Bank. Uh, because people view this as religious destiny, so Muslims view it as, as as their land, and so Muhammad was meant to have come to to the Al-Aqsa Mosque that was built over the the Dome of the Rock, uh, and you know and ascended to heaven uh, on his in his horse from there. So there's the claim for there, and of course Jewish people view it as absolutely their their religious God given homeland so given the fact it's religion not not just nationalism at stake here you, nationalism you could you could possibly you can imagine might actually um change you know morph over you know a good number of years but when you talk about it's religion that that is so intrinsic to this region that's why people fight over this place because of the religious part of it so do you genuinely see any solution political solution when underpinning this is uh faith is 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 not logic at all
3: it's faith yeah to an extent i mean often i find that kind of interpretation of events can often uh, obscure the reality a little bit and you know we have precedents elsewhere the uh you know the protestants aren't allowed to march through catholic regions of northern ireland commemorating and honoring the, the massacres of um you know the massacres of Catholics. Uh, you know, there's precedent for these things being dealt with decently and proportionately and sensibly elsewhere, I think. Um, you know, and again, you have lots of secular, secular Jews, secular Israelis who feel much more troubled by extreme Jewish fanatics, uh, Jewish extremist religions, um, interpretations of that religion than they do by secular Palestinians I think the the problem is that currently and and for the last you know two decades really the political situation and lived reality for Palestinians in particular has become so has become so sort of circumscribed and and bad um that in that space religious ideas Really flourish, um, you know. If you're living in Gaza under an Israeli blockade, and you've got two million people in something like, you know, forty square kilometers, a stretch of land like ten kilometers wide, um, and and you have you know Israeli snipers on the on the blockaded sort of land outside. So if you protest, you might get shot at. You know, you've got bombs falling in that ex- experience where your life has been taken out of your own control. I think religion is probably a timeless kind of antidote to that loss of control because actually within your own mind uh you can you know you, the, the notion of paradise and an afterlife becomes in, increasingly appealing but I actually don't think that's the version of life most people want and and I think with um with the political situation addressed and ameliorated I uh, I think you could often you could find a sort of um, you know, a really diminished hold of religion over it all. I mean, if you go back to the 20th century, the the first proposals of a Jewish homeland, I mean, it's obviously in Israel now, and Jerusalem, of course, has that, that resonance. But at first it was discussed as potentially being in, in Africa, in what is modern-day Uganda. Uganda. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think anything is ever intractable. And then again, as I mentioned earlier, with fertility treatments and the idea of um you know same sex parenting actually being mostly popular with jewish communities in israel where they maybe wouldn't be with christian or whatever communities elsewhere in the west because of that no you know the notion of the demographic battle so you you see uh, uh, the the reality of the politics really melding the form that religion will take and the views that religion will take. And so I do think that if the politics has improved and that absolutely has to be done as an imperative. Um, and then the obvious things such as you know the Orangeman marches in Northern Ireland, whatever their equivalents are in in Palestine and in Israel, are wound in, which I think you'd find supported amongst um Israelis um, Israeli secular people as well, and equally secular Palestinians who who don't feel represented by Hamas, of course, and who aren't even Muslim. You know, I speak in the book to a guy who started a craft brewery outside Ramallah, um, and he talks about his problems with you know people who are much more. Uh, Extremist in their views of Islam than your average Palestinian would be. I mean, he's a Palestinian Christian, which is a, the existence of which gets somewhat erased. The fact that about one third of Palestinians are Christian mm-hmm. is completely obscured um, because I think, again, for sort of we live in a very Islamophobic time and it becomes easier to sort of uh, justify the repression of, that the Palestinians have to live under uh, if we just say, oh, well, they're Muslims and, and there's a very pernicious notion that Muslims are kind of inherently dangerous or inherently more religious than other, other religious groups. Um, and, and yeah, I think if we can improve the politics, the, the religious kind of, uh, the strictness of religious understanding, whether it's, um, Palestinian or Israeli can ameliorate because people actually ultimately just want better lives. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Now in the book, you do discuss this, but I mean, I'd just like to, to, to draw it out on you, and, and I'm just being devil's advocate here. An almost amount of, um, it is a catchism in Israel, that the Palestinians are pawns, basically kept as you know this, this victim status, this refugee uh, kind of mentality um, because of geopolitics, because... The other um, majority Arab countries in the region, in effect, want to continue fighting the 1948 war. And it's in their interest to keep uh, Palestinians as refugees. Whereas if this happened anywhere else in the world, you would expect, uh, if there was um, any uh, genocides that happened, any... Uh, push back to get people to disappear from a region
3: yeah.
0: and they left that region, will they be absorbed uh, in other parts of of the world close to, to that region? This hasn't happened to the Palestinians because they've been kept as pawns. So you could have solved this problem. The Arab world could have solved this problem if they had absorbed uh, the Palestinians uh, 48 to begin with, 67 in, in that, in the Yom Kippur War, et cetera, et cetera. 73, sorry, is the Yom Kippur War. So yeah. they could have done. So what? what is, I mean, you, I know you discuss this in the book, so you can just talk about that, but what yeah. is, let's just talk about it here. What's your view of Palestinians being this, deliberately being made victims by their, let's put it this way, the, by their own side?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lack, there's been a, a lack of. Uh, particularly as a result of Western meddling in the region, there's been a lack of, um, you know, local democratic states in the Middle East, which has in in turn made it harder to um, to create a sort of democratic, lasting, just solution to the, this issue. I mean, I do think it's very important to to acknowledge that actually the arrival of Jewish paramilitaries and and then Jewish settlers to that region was you know it's an ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians um, and so of course people fled um, and then to an extent you know the, the borders as you as you say have been in such different places over the years after forty eight after sixty seven after seventy three you know there's been times under military rule by is, Israeli there's been times where the West Bank was kind of in some respects a, a part of Jordan and and was administered. By Jordan so it's it's partly a question of things changing at different times but I mean ultimately a Palestinian from uh, Hebron or from Nablus doesn't necessarily want to be incorporated into an outer suburb of Cairo or Damascus um, because they've been removed from from their homeland Um, you know that's kind of no real consolation for the sort of the trauma and the injury that you've been done and i do think in the western view of of palestine there can be a real carelessness that sort of endorses this idea that well you know arabs are all the same which actually is very you know a deep and prominently racist part of israeli thinking that oh well they could just go somewhere else um you know we wouldn't understand and I I often within the book kind of put what's happened into a European perspective and if you know if France had sort of colonized sort of Germany and sort of shunted off uh, great tracts of German people well they could go and live in uh, you know the Netherlands or or in in Belgium or in Austria because you know they they also speak they also speak German and actually they'll be fine there um the idea that people actually have a right to the land that they're on and to the land of their, their ancestry, to their, to their forebears, um, you know, is really important. And it's very interesting as well that when we look at the, the Israeli sort of self-justification for why it will take the land that it does, uh, is that this is the land of our forefathers going back, say, 2,000 years. But actually, this is Palestinian land going back two years, 20 years, like a century at most. So the idea that Israel Israel, and Israelis and Jews have the right to return, which is the exact same turn of phrase that Palestinians invoke, a right to return to lands that they were cleansed from in '48 with the Israeli arrival. The idea that that can be extended to Jewish people but not to Palestinians is really, it's on its head sort of thing.
0: <laughs> but we screwed up in that you know, the Brits screwed up, all, all the, 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 the world powers screwed up. On this yeah at various times in in history and including of course the ottoman empire which you'll be familiar with yeah uh, so so given the fact that we have screwed up uh, the, the kind of the we as in uh the western powers that have tried to solve this given that that we have always screwed up there has got to be a solution that that is arrived at on the ground so you're not in favor of Israel disappearing, you just want there to be, you think there's going to be, a, as, as Gilly in the book says, there's going to be a two state solution. That's the only way of, of solving this. It's going to be two states.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's very, you know, and Gilly would be prominent in suggesting that that is the idea that conti- consistently polls best. Um, But then, as we see with this current plan from Trump and Kushner, you can be very disingenuous with what you call a second state in that two-state solution. I mean, me, myself, I mean, I'm probably sufficiently, there are no borders in my overall worldview. Or, you know, my love of the bicycle and the fact that actually we can all just happily live together. You know, and and you'd find that common on, you know, uh, left-wing Israelis or or Palestinians who might now simply just say one state. but you know, I'm I'm an outsider of the region, however much I care about it and however much, you know, I might have accumulated some knowledge. It's not really it's not for me to say. Um and I, I do think that one state has a, a degree of sense to it. Um I mean Israel is there, of course. And there are you know, there are Arab Jews from elsewhere in the Middle East who moved to Israel because they, they felt safer in a Jewish state than in the Arab states they'd come from. Uh, there are whatever historical claims of the Jewish people to that land as well. Uh, you know, I'm sufficiently convinced always that people in the right circumstances can live together happily and, and peaceably, that that would always be my, my kind of guiding instinct on what the outcome should be. Um, but I do
0: think Sorry, I think we should explain who Gili is, because I'm... Uh... I know who he is because I've read the book, um, right. but, and we did discuss him uh, earlier on. But just just give us a pen nail, a thumbnail sketch of of, of Gili and, and his role in the Israeli peace process.
3: Yeah, sorry. So Gili was he was a negotiator at the Camp David Accords, um, and then again under the the late Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. So he's someone that over decades has really known the Israeli position. Um, on on negotiations with the palestinians and it's an interesting um, his own ethnic background is interesting in that he's a sephardic jew so he would be of the the refugees of of spain that left or the iberian peninsula that left after the spanish inquisition so his family line has really been in jerusalem for centuries and centuries which i think gives him a really valuable perspective on it in that he is of course Jewish but nobody could say that he does not belong in that that part of the world after so many centuries and equally because he is indigenously of that part of the world I think he has sympathy with the Palestinian position Vis a vis, you know, the, the notion of say a, a Jewish person from the Ukraine moving to a settlement on occupied Palestinian land, and that not necessarily being a just thing either. So, yeah, you you do find all all manner of of different opinions, um, but I think ultimately there, I think Israel needs to to think as a nation about how to live at peace in the Middle East. And I think so deep within the thinking of the regime is the idea that you can have war with Iran, that you can make friends with a deeply brutal and authoritarian dictatorship in Saudi Arabia, um, that you can just keep the Palestinians under military occupation. I mean, none of these things are are sort of lasting lasting settlements, um mm. in a way that can never provide for a sustainable and, and like mutually prosperous future. And, you know, I think there are big problems within it all around capitalism. There's a lot of money involved. Um, There is, of course, the religious dynamic as well. But I I do think that, you know, states have a sort of duty to the people living in them to um, do do what's best for providing a lasting solution. And I, I do think those solutions are out there with the right political will. I think we're going to see increased disengagement from the region from the United States after Donald Trump, probably. Um, Because, you know, the Middle East as a region, because of its endemic kind of poor levels of democracy, um, you know, it's a region that's going to be really hit hard by climate change. It's a region that is already being hit hard by the declining value of, of oil and gas, which is obviously a welcome trend in the world. And so you're going to see diminishing U.S. engagement with that region. And and Israel has really like premised its entire existence for the last 50 years um, in particular on that sort of support. You know, the U.S. sends Israel $10 million a day um, in military aid for the most part. And, you know, this, this current administration has a lot of support for that. But I don't think that's going to be a lasting trend. It's something that's coming under increased scrutiny within the United States. And and I just think it's in the, the interests of a country and its people to, to be at peace with its neighbours. And you can't have peace without justice. Um, so I think that's that's kind of the core of, of what I feel needs to happen in Israel. And And with its current government, it's not going to have, or even the opposition, uh of of benny gantz the sort of like nominally centrist or less nationalist character there's still a sort of deep kind of attraction to annexing the west bank to Mm. you know bombing hamas in gaza um and and yeah i just think there's a lack of an honest discourse going on
0: so go back to geely there's a quote there which which uh, meshes with what you just said there exactly. So a quote from him is, you cannot have a state that denies others their freedom. You can't, whatever the reason, it just won't work. It's not sustainable. So is he ever likely, or people like, not maybe not him, but are there people like him potentially going to be uh, to the fore negotiating in the future? Or do you think that was the, that was the, the chance that they had back then when he was uh, on the Oslo Accords?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think looked back, look back at Oslo was uh, an opportunity, um, and yeah, I think there was a good faith engagement at that time to an extent that that had some sort of hope. I mean, the Palestinians would suggest that the Israelis never stopped building settlements, and Oslo was sort of the you know the ultimate sort of charade, really, which gave legitimacy to the ongoing sort of like de facto annexation of Palestinian territory. Uh, so I don't think that that time was a golden age whatsoever. But I do think, um, you know, if you see the Clinton administration or, or whatever, there was a kind of a more genuine engagement with the idea of finding a just solution. And and yeah, we're certainly not at that time right now. Um, but it's always it's hard to see what the, what the future holds. Um, I think... Yeah, it's it's a very difficult process because I mean, democracy within the Palestinian territories has been corrupted by, say, the Palestinian Authority just providing security services for the Israelis equally. So, what should be the government in Palestine and has these very limited set of powers? Um, often, it ends up sort of policing protests and the like, or, or activists. In a way that is at odds with Palestinian democracy, but upholds its kind of own relationship with with Israel, with you know, in a relationship that has numerous kind of funding um, funding channels tied to it. So you know, ultimately, you know, my sympathies are foremost with the Palestinians. My support foremost with, with with the Palestinians. I mean, I do have some compassion for the idea that I don't think. The Israeli population is living a natural life, as as you know, these kind of oppressors by by default in the, in this very sort of um, highly religiousized society that is in a state of sort of permanent war. I don't think that's good for Israelis either, but but mostly I feel like Palestinians are being denied their voice. But you know, sadly, that is it's in part the trajectory of the Middle East at present. And we always hear the lies put about prominently of Palestine in particular, the idea that they're not ready for democracy. I mean, democracy is a very kind of, it's an innate human notion of consensus building. And, and the the thing that has become most problematic in, in the region in finding sort of democratic structures and answers is, you know, the brutal experience of colonialism now, the brutal experience under sort of Western bombs, the Iraq war, and And then the sort of like modern dictators of the bin salmans uh the Netanyahus, where you see democratic channels shut down by what has become sort of sophisticated spyware of the digital world, so this kind of concerted attempt to to throttle democracy in the region because of oil interests because of the interests of sort of hereditary monarchies um and israeli security i mean there's been so much sort of bloodshed and so much like life and human potential sort of wasted, um, as a result of it. And it's, it's not going to put out the will to freedom of the Palestinian people, of the people of the Middle East, because that's immutable. You know, you feel a sense of freedom when you ride a bicycle or when you see the sunrise or the sunset, which is really something I tried to sort of bring out in the book. You know, this, this isn't going away um and so that's why i think it's kind of um you know israel is beholden to sort of to it owes it to itself as well as the people it's ended up as the occupier of to think about well you know what are, what's our long term engagement here uh, and that has to tend towards justice because otherwise it, it it won't last
0: let let's let's park uh geopolitics for a second i know that's incredibly hard with the, for this particular region but you did mention uh, the bicycle there so let's get back to the bicycle but I want to specifically talk about your, your safety on a bicycle because I'm sure many people listening to, to this are we thinking wow Julian's been in places that I can't imagine going you having to go through checkpoints you've got people with guns pointing at you all the time this must have been incredibly dangerous however given the fact that I've done very similar things in the past and I didn't really feel afraid uh, at those times I've tended to feel more afraid at the cars, so did you feel the same that you you, you don't feel actually that frightened by the the geopolitics in effect because you are immersed in it, but you're more frightened by the cars passing you within in- inches
3: yeah absolutely I mean it's always the reality of it in some ways when you're you know sitting. Back at home in, in the West, you can yeah the the notion of the security or the uh, you know the military situation um, is is what sort of sticks in your mind. But yeah, on the reality reality on the ground, statistically around the world, certainly when you're traveling on a bicycle, you know tragically, of course, that is the the greatest threat. Um, and yeah, no, I mean there is, as I say, about something about that sense of being vulnerable when you're on a bicycle. I think actually um gives you a whole new way of seeing the world. I mean, much as travelling by bike is a is a joy. Um and there are some moments where it's absolute elation and freedom. But yeah, that um constant threat of traffic and especially in, in countries, whether it's the Israeli or Palestinian side, where, you know, cycling as you mentioned, even if it's increasing in the cities, it's not particularly common on the roads. Um out in the in the wider country and uh, people aren't expecting to see a cyclist and might not be driving very carefully and then you know it's part of the very mundane threat that cars pose to people everywhere really that for whatever reason we just kind of price in as a sort of inevitable danger of the world where it really doesn't have to be
0: i think so what kind of bike were you using
3: um I was on my my trusty steed which is a my tutorin, which is from a, a small company in um in Freiburg. Um, yes, it sounds French but it's German. Yeah exactly. I mean I guess it's on the border of France and I suppose maybe they just saw Tourane was a sort of um you know spoke to a more global audience but they've they've been my sponsors really for uh, my bicycles going back to the the round the world ride um I think they, they, they're they a small sort of originally a husband and wife team and I think they really valued um, that kind of, you know, the anti-corporate sort of notion of uh, the purity of life on a bike and the, the open road and adventure. So they've always been, um, you know, very kind in looking after me with bike stuff. Um, and then, yeah, it's just a fantastic uh, purpose-built touring frame, really. You know, you've got things like a little metal collar, On the headset, so that if your bicycle falls over and goes down a ditch, it doesn't like the handlebars can't swing all the way around um, and pull your cables out and other little things like that. Um, Very good sort of stand on the back um, and and an inbuilt pannier rack, so you've got sort of fewer nuts and bolts to work loose or uh, whatever it might be. Um, Do you have a a plug? uh, Say that again, Carlton. The plug, do you have
0: that? That's the like the USB charging?
3: Yeah, yeah. no, I don't. I've kind of been meaning to talk to them about that, actually. Um, I remember I was with them in Freiburg, probably, yeah, that's part of 10 years ago when they were just trialing it. And I think we had a conversation, actually, about the name The Plug. Um, Ollie and Stephanie are the guys that run it. And obviously plug is an English word. And I can't remember exactly what the German for plug is, but it's sort of much more precise and it's three words and it doesn't have that same kind of iconic sound as plug. So I think I was there when we were talking about, well, they just call it the plug. Um, So I'm glad the name stuck. Uh, But no, I didn't have that. And I have been meaning to talk to them about it. Equally, I was cycling through um, Italy Last autumn, and came across a French cyclist who'd just he'd flown back in from Brazil and to to the south of Italy and was cycling home to France, but he had a little solar mat that he just um, rolled out on the back of his pannier and that was charging his phone. And I think the price of those things has come down so much.
0: Um, Pretty I've I've used them as well, but that that the plug, you know, you just plug it in literally and power your devices, and because it's your motion. And yeah, I think you yeah. have got to reach a certain speed. So it's no, it's no point if you like, you know, five mile an hour cycle yeah. to. How to be going a fair old clip to yeah. actually charge stuff? But then it, it builds up into a battery, that's a great system. So I like to yeah. direct from that point of view.
3: Yeah, no, they're a great company, very innovative. Uh, I mean, in that German way, they they really love the design. Um, and I, I don't cycle with a trailer, but I think they've done. They've got some really good trailer products as well. Um, just because they they love really sort of refining the design process to to match you know the functionality uh i can't remember how many sort of you know meters climbing um equivalent resistance the plug was um but it it was something like you know 3 3 meters of altitude gain uh by 10 kilometers or something was the kind of equivalent resistance that the the charging system puts on it so yeah, as I say, I've been meaning to talk to them about it. Maybe, maybe this is the prompt to get back in touch. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: definitely. Get your front wheel, your hub, your Shimano. Yeah. Hub. Your yeah. Hub. yeah. Um. So okay. So that's the bike. Let's go back to the book, and that is you said it's out in April. You said it's three hundred and seventy pages. Yes. It was three hundred and seventy yep. pages. So just uh, we're going we're gonna to end now, Julian. But we're going to end by you telling uh, everybody where they can actually physically. Get this book. How much does it cost? All of that stuff.
3: Well, yeah, the books, uh, it's out mid-April uh, 15th, April the 16th. Uh, the books of tenor. You can get it as an ebook. book okay. um, Obviously, I, I'd always say that a local independent bookshop is always the best place to get it ordered in. Otherwise, of course, it exists on Amazon and the like as well. Well, that's Julian, that's fabulous
0: value for money because it is it, – I can visualise it because I know how many pages electronically there are. A 370-page book, Tenor, is incredibly good value. Is there photographs in there or is it all your pen portraits?
3: It's all my pen portraits. Um, there was a Palestinian illustrator who wanted to remain anonymous, but she did some really beautiful map work. So there's maps of the of the territory and of the different regions that I was cycling in. Um, but, yeah, so it's, um, you know, it's a nice looking book, I have to say. Excellent. Well, I, I, I'm not going to say I'm,
0: I'm going to look forward to reading it because I have read it and it's a fantastic yeah. book. Thank you very much for, for letting me see an advanced copy of that. Julian, tell us um, uh, where we can find you on the Internet, apart from your book. So your website and your social media handle, all that kind of stuff.
3: Yeah, I'm uh, juliansaira.com is the website which has got sort of details of past journeys and future plans. Um, as with most people, try to use Twitter a little bit less, but I'm on that at juliansaira, and also um, in this visual age of L, as have kind of made the jump over to Instagram, so I'm on Instagram as well at juliansaira.
0: Julian, it's been fascinating to talk to you, and it has been a, a, a very long show. Uh, considering I do try and keep these things to to below the hour. But, you know, 6,000 years of history, um, geopolitics coming out of your ears. Uh, I I think we did it partially good justice there. So thank you very much uh, for being on the show.
3: Not at all, Carlton. Thanks for having me. It's been great talking. Two hours and 10 minutes and
0: counting of uh, audio there for you in... uh, in the coronavirus uh, lockdown, I'm sure you won't mind uh, getting quite that much audio to keep you going. So uh, thank you ever so much to to Julian for, for talking geopolitics and cycling and uh, his explorations uh, around the world. And thank you before that to uh, Malak and to Saheb for uh, talking to me in Palestine itself. And thank you, too, for listening to this extremely long show and uh, for subscribing to the Spokesman Cycling Podcast uh, in all your favourite uh, podcast-centric places, including, of course, iTunes. I would really appreciate if you gave a review of, uh, of this show, of previous shows. On iTunes, uh, on the various places where you will be getting your uh, your, your podcast, it'd be great to get uh, some feedback on on how the the show is uh, is doing for you. And uh, this has been show two hundred and forty three of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable, sometimes Roundtable podcast. Uh, the last couple of shows have been roundtables. Uh, this has been just purely me going out with a microphone and uh, speaking to people. Uh, so, thank you for uh, listening to the show. And the next show will be out next month, I guess. Uh, so, uh, meanwhile, get out there and try and ride as much as you can in the lockdown.